We're getting to a spot in Matthew chapter 5. For the rest of the year, we'll be in these passages. And then next year, uh, after we do a series on Advent, uh, next year we'll start into Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 5 is a spot where Jesus is now going to begin talking to us about the law. What the law was intended to do. The heart behind the law. Not just the letter of the law. Well, I didn't do that. Uh, but all the things that that might encompass. So starting next week, we'll get to hear Jesus' specific statements where he takes some examples of, I, you know, you've heard it say this, but I say this. But it starts out with this kind of addressing, now that we're on the subject, let's talk about my relationship to the law. Let's talk about what me as rabbi and Messiah, uh, see how we view the law. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, do not think... I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away or pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need insight this morning into your word. We need to understand what is being said and, and how we can understand Jesus better through it and what you might be asking of us because of what we read and what we see and what we hear this morning. So, that show us how you have always been speaking and what that means for us as we look to your son. May we hear his words today. We pray it in his name, Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we just started this past week our uh, What Did You Expect Marriage Mentoring. I believe we had five couples sign up for that and participate in the marriage mentoring course or kind of Paul, uh, Paul Tripp's study, which we're really excited about. One of the things he'll talk about as you, as you guys go through it, the five couples who are doing it, you'll find out that a lot of this is just relationship, like just interacting with people and how, how it works. But uh, one thing that often drives relationships crazy is bad communication. And I'm sure none of you ever deal with this, not a single person. But just imagine a world where perhaps you said something you didn't mean, or you thought your friend or your spouse heard you say the thing that you meant, but then they turn around like, you never said that. Or maybe just something slips out and it reveals more of your heart than you wish, but you're still kind of like, well, what do I do with that? How many times have you made a commitment that perhaps you have not kept? Not because you're trying to be malicious, but maybe you just got distracted. I'll be there here. I'll call you here. Or I promise I'll get back to you with this. And you haven't done it. And it doesn't take long, even for me, with the relationship with my own sons, to have a conversation with my boys and Uh, I ask them maybe an area where I haven't measured up, and they remember things that I've said or promises that I've made or words that I've used. Uh, One of my kids in particular likes to throw the stuff I said in my sermons right back at me and say, uh, you said you preached on this, and now, and I'm like, ugh. 
but welcome to life with people. We are often poor communicators. We're also poor listeners, not just the one speaking, but the one listening. And there are sometimes, and I'm not, this is often my fault, right? When I think of sermons, sometimes I'll say something in a sermon, and then someone will go, man, I really loved how you said X. And I'm like, I never said that. I promise I never said that. Or they'll say, hey, you never said X. I'm like, I no, I did. Like, I, I, can, I can go right, I, it's right here. It's just right, there's the sentence right there. Uh, so we don't always speak well as we intend, and we don't always listen well as we intend. Um, but this is something that God has never had a problem with. God has not had a problem speaking clearly. He has not had a problem stating his expectations. He has not had a problem communicating his heart. He will go so far as to communicate with us that the Father sends the Son into the world who reveals to us the Father. He will then, through faith in Jesus and the work that he's done, put the Spirit inside of us that as we read the words of God, we will be able to understand what God has said. And yet we still don't listen, struggle to hear, do not communicate it. But not so with Jesus. Jesus is always and eternally different in his approach to hearing from his Father and responding. This morning, we're going to see Jesus' relationship to the law. And I hope, my prayer, I guess you can call it hopeful expectation, just get out there in front, is that it leads us to rejoice that Jesus has done something that we can't do, but that was needed. You know, if somebody's like, hey, I can do this for you, and I never needed it, well, I wouldn't be that concerned about it. But Jesus does something for us that is needed in responding to his Father in every way. So in order to do that, because we're talking about speaking and communicating, in order to do that, we first want to just look at the idea about how God has always spoken, then we look at our passage in Matthew chapter 5. So this is the thing I want to say right now, is that God has always spoken to his creation. He has been a speaking, communicating God. He has never been elusive, though some might make you think that. He has always been speaking. I'm going to give you just a few examples of God's clear communication and speaking. Let's start in the first chapter of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 1, or verse 3 of chapter 1, we read, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God speaks, and something happens. We do not get three verses into the Bible before God speaks, before he says something. Let there be light. And there was light. We actually read later in... The scriptures, right, that in God is no darkness at all. 
The first thing God speaks is about light. And there was. And all through the creation story, what? God is speaking and things are happening. Speaking, response, speak, response, speak, response, speak, response. Doesn't really happen that well, though, in Genesis chapter 3, does it? Now, here we are. God speaks and we're like, well, hold on. I don't think that that's really how it goes. So, you know, Satan twists the words of God. We listen to Satan. We don't respond rightly. And so now God has spoken. We know the consequence. If you eat from this tree, you will surely die. He has not been unclear there. But our response is one that is not clear. So from the beginning, though God has spoken, we have not always responded obediently. You could do more. You could do Noah. God speaks to Noah, and Noah responds. But look at also at Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So Abram or Abraham as he becomes known. He obeyed, he followed, a nation was built, but there were still issues of obedience and disobedience. Not issues of God speaking, but issues of man obeying. Now, some time passes, I fast forward, but uh, we end Genesis in Egypt, and then we have this Pharaoh who rises up over Egypt who didn't know Joseph, and he, now we go into a new world where God now gets his people out of the land of Egypt. And as they move from the land of Egypt, which again, God does by speaking from a bush, right? A burning bush, God's voice comes to Moses. Then as they are freed from their slavery, they go up out of, their, out of the land. Moses is now the Sinai, and he goes and he speaks with God on the mountain. God speaks to him, he gets the law, he brings the law back, so now God is declaring how he wants his people to act through the law, though we know that they don't respond obediently to what the law says, but still God is speaking, 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 speaking. As the history of the nation goes on, what do we see? But God is speaking through the prophets, and he's calling them to repentance, and he's calling them to live out God's heart for how they were to operate, but God's heart also for how they were to shine for him in the world. We just recently went through Jonah, and what does God do? And it was the word of the Lord to Jonah said, right? The word of the Lord to Jonah, get up, right? Go to Nineveh and call out against her. God is speaking to and through the prophets. But as we get, now we're going to go post-ascension of Jesus, right? So we're going to go back to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. But now I want you to hear a passage that I've used before, but it is so important for us to understand how God is speaking now. God spoke through the law. He spoke through the prophets. But now God speaks to us through his son. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. 
Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God spoke through the prophets. Now he speaks through his Son. The way you know what God has spoken is to look at his son. But even as Jesus ministered on earth, people were questioning his relationship to God and what he stood for. And even at the time... Here we are in Israel's history. There were rabbis and teachers. So like we said, the Sermon on the Mount is not like the first time any rabbi stood up and instructed disciples. It was the way that rabbis taught. Matthew does give us the clues on the mountain, speaking from the mountain. But rabbis teach, and they teach their disciples. But people are still trying to size Jesus up. They want to know, who is this guy? What's he doing? And different rabbis had different schools of thought regarding how the law related to the people now. And Jesus is about to explain, almost preemptively, let me tell you what I'm doing. Let me show you what I'm doing in relationship to the law and how it works out. And what we will see in these verses is that Jesus fulfills what God's people should have always done. Should have always done. But we'll see cycle. We've already seen cycle after cycle after cycle of God saying something and people not obeying what God had said. God saying something and people not obeying what God said. God saying something. It doesn't matter how perfect you feel like you are. You can find in the course of 30 minutes something that was aberrant, something that did not, should not have been in your heart or in your mind or on your lips or in your actions. It doesn't take long. So Jesus is going to talk about how he fulfills what God has always done. God has always been speaking, but God's people have not always been listening rightly. So look at verse 17. Jesus is going to say it from the beginning. Do not think I have come to abolish, get rid of, remove, cast aside the law or the prophets. The two ways they spoke about God speaking. They would talk about law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So people who would be wondering if Jesus would somehow minimize the law, reduce the law, or kind of summarize it and just be like, oh no, it's no big deal. Like, you don't have to really care about the law. Just be happy. Be nice. Be kind. He will say things like this, right? For all the law, the prophets are summed up in this idea that you would have love for one another. He'll, he'll give you these kind of meta themes of the law, but he wants you to know that he did not come to cast them aside or say it doesn't matter not important, but to fulfill them. And I don't just mean fulfill in regard to check a box. Check, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm good here, I'm good there, I'm good there. That's often how we do it. But fulfill as in live out, exemplify, do what it was asking. I'm showing you the good life. I'm showing you how life was to be lived but you have not been able to do. Do not think that I have come to get rid of it. I have come to fulfill it, 
to show you its truest, purest, perfect example of how we were to live this life. He wants to set the record straight on what he's doing in relationship to the law. And we need this kind. We, as the people listening, even his disciples, need that kind of obedience because we are always unable to fulfill it. We haven't done it. No one has been able to do it. No one has been able to live out that life, show that life, exemplify that life. Even the best, most holy, pure God-glorifying example of someone who has tried with all that they have within them to live this life as beautifully as they can still can't go long without realizing the many ways they have been unable. But not Jesus. We need Jesus to do what he's done. We need the person who listens to the voice of the Father and responds in every way, to every bit of it. Didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And then he begins to talk about, he uses words that might confuse us if we only have Galatians in our mind. Because now he talks about, in a sense, the, the enduring nature of the law. Verses 18 and 19. He says this, the law won't pass away until the new heaven and the new earth. Until this world is done with, the law is not going to pass away. Now, we need to make a distinction in our mind. I already said, if we have Galatians in our head, and we go, well, the law is good for nothing. That's not true. The law is good for nothing in regard to saving us. It cannot save us. Our obedience to it will not save us because we cannot do the thing that it has said. But the law is not meaningless. And so sometimes we can attach those two words together, or those two ideas. You don't need the law. If you don't need the law, then why is there so much of it? Why is there so much that God has spoken? It's like, ah, it's no big deal. You don't need that anymore. No one cares about that. You could go ahead and just only read the New Testament, and you would never need anything else. That's not true. But sometimes we only think, oh, well, the law doesn't save, so the law has no point. I don't need to read Leviticus. I don't need to read Numbers. I don't need to read Deuteronomy. But Jesus is about to say something different about the law in 18 and 19. Look at this. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, Not a dot or jot or tittle, the smallest marks on the letter will not pass away until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So now we have Jesus teaching... And he's going, no, 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 and whoever relaxes these or tries to make them easier for you, they're the the least. Whoever teaches them and instructs on them, they're the greatest. 
which kind of sends our little Galatians brain into hay, you know, like haywire. Like, how does that work? How do we do those things? Why is Jesus talking about how he fulfills it and how it's not going away when clearly as we follow the progress of Revelation into Galatians, the law doesn't save. It doesn't have power in that way. And this is where we have to realize that God is always speaking. And as God speaks, he is showing us life as it was to be intended. He is showing us his heart and how we were to live. He is always consistent and clear. Even if we might struggle to understand sometimes what we read, you go through the whole of Scripture, and it's not as if sometimes we have in this mind, like, oh, there's the Old Testament angry God, and there's the New Testament loving God, and we need to, we need to separate those two. And that's just not the case. That God is always the same, but as we reveal more of his character, we, or he reveals more of his nature to us and how salvation will go, then we start to see other aspects. We go, oh, this is what was happening. This is what he meant. So when God speaks in the law... He's revealing his character, his works, and his promises to us. He's showing the nation how they are to live. At the same time, our flesh and sin in us is rebelling against it. That's the lesson we see in Galatians. Well, I, you know, I, like, like, now the law's there. It says in Romans 2, the law's there. All I want to do now is break it. You tell me not to do something, and now I want to do it. You tell me to do something, and now I don't want to do it. Sin in us does those, but it doesn't change the enduring nature of the law or God's character in it. So we don't then need to remove the law, stop reading the Old Testament, not read the prophets to hear what God has said. We don't need to say, oh, that's done with. It doesn't matter anymore. But Jesus is about to show us a truer fulfillment. So commentator R.T. France, I try to give you, let you guys know the commentaries I use when I am doing, doing this. So I talked about Jonathan Pennington, R.T. France is another one, my buddy Chris is another person. Those are kind of like my, it's my triumvirate right now. R.T. France would put it like this. The law, down to its smallest details, is as permanent as heaven and earth. And will never lose its significance. On the contrary, all that it points forward to will in fact become a reality. Now that the reality has arrived in Jesus, the jots and tittles will be seen in a new light, but they still cannot be discarded. And even when we're with Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth, right, what do we have? A totally different way to relate to God. But his heart has been given to us in his spirit, and we get to live it in a totally free way. And remember, as we read the Sermon on the Mount, there is this future kingdom. There is this world that is coming. There's this life that is coming that is there for us that then should change what we do now, a la the Beatitudes, right? Like, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at what is coming. Jesus is preaching to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right, so future enters into present, and it's changed how we are to operate. 
So there's significance in all that we do as we pursue God and read. So then, in verse 19, as he moves to teaching it, he talks about those who relax it are going to be the least, and those who teach it will be the greatest, because it's not their salvation, but the law's value. Those who are going to teach and instruct and look and find Christ who gives life in the whole of what God has spoken. Those people will be greatest. Those who edit and disregard or diminish or don't study, don't learn from, those would be the least in the kingdom. And he doesn't say, and I like this, he doesn't say you're kicked out of the kingdom. He just goes, you're the least in the kingdom because you're not concerned about all that God has said. You're only concerned about some of what God has said. And so give attention to all that God has spoken and instruct on all that God has spoken. That's why one of the reasons, and it's not the exclusive reason, but one of the reasons is like we want to kind of have, as we work on our preaching flow, is we want to bounce some between testaments. We want to do Galatians, and we want to do James, but then we go back and we do Jonah, and then we go back forward, we do Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we want to find passages or teach on ideas that are rich within all that God has revealed. Though we see now in the personal work of Jesus, we want to, we want to grab hold of what we read in the New Testament and understand it because it helps us to understand the old it helps us to understand the fuller meaning of what God was doing, but we don't want to just ditch it, remove it, say it's not a concern. And I'm like many of you, right? You kind of there's there's still the spots I've talked about before, the spots in your Bible where the pages still stick together. You've had your Bible 15 years, and you're like, huh? I was like those pages still still kind of stuck, right? Because the binding, you know, the gold they put on it never really got broken because you haven't read it. That's like many of us. But read and understand and engage and memorize and discuss. We want to keep doing that so we can give attention to all that God has said. In fact, we're working on a reading plan for next year, for 2021, that is all of the Bible. And our memory work is exclusively, I think, right now, Psalms. Uh, so that we can root ourselves in all that is said. So we did kind of an overview, Old New Testament. We're doing all New Testament this year. Next year, we want to do all of the scriptures. Read and memorize and discuss and continue to run over it. And every pass you make over it, the more you see, right? Every time you read it again, you go, I hadn't seen that before. There are still things where I'm like, did I, was that ever in my Bible? Like, did it just show up? I feel like I've read that passage 20 times I've never, ever seen that verse, ever. So I would encourage you to read even in different translations. Read how people are translating these words from the Greek or the Aramaic or the Hebrew and trying to make sense of it. So maybe next year when you read, grab a translation you haven't read before and read that one. It'll help fill out some of these ideas and you can go, oh, I had not considered that before. Maybe you, get, you stumble in the Old Testament, but you could read like the New Living Translation and go, this helps. This helps. It's helping to put some pieces together for me, but avail yourselves to that. Now, though, as Jesus gets into it, 
He's about to do something that I think is, I think it's crazy. Because he's about to essentially say, none of you measure up. But at the same time, he kind of states it as an expectation. So he's talking about the law. I didn't abolish it, but fulfill it. In fact, I fulfill it, and it's not going anywhere, so you need to give attention to it. But he's going to show us how he's going to give it, how, what it really meant in the coming examples. You've heard it say, but I say. You've heard it say, but I say. You've heard it say, but I say, that we will get into. But he's about to raise the bar on everyone listening. He's basically going to say this. We need a righteousness that exceeds anything we have seen. We need a righteousness that exceeds anything we've seen. A true, full, exhaustive way of honoring God. That's what he's doing, right? That bar is going higher and higher and higher. He's not diminishing it. In fact, he just said, I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And now he's going to show us, just with some examples, what that fulfillment really means. For I tell you, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I do not think that in this moment, Jesus is giving the scribes and Pharisees a jab. I think he's drawing a distinction in putting into the minds and hearts of those who are listening to him teach a sense of what you mean what now righteousness we said this in james righteousness is two ideas it's right standing and right living right so often in the old testament not exclusively there's a lot of discussion on right living this is a big part of what we see in James, right living. This will be a big part of what we see in Jesus, right living, especially in this sermon. There's also right standing, the declaration of being good with God, the judicial sense of it, where God, through our faith in Jesus, the Father goes, we're good. You're forgiven. Right standing. Right living is living out what God would have for his people to do. Both senses of righteousness are important for us. Both of them. So Jesus says, your righteousness needs to be greater than that of the scribes or the Pharisees. And I just want you to think about that for a second. You need, as I just said, you need to know more Bible, quote more Bible, than the people who can recite it to you. who can stand up there and say it. You need to be more familiar with what was being spoken by God than even those who have been trained for years and years under the best rabbis. You need to have a developed way of living life with God that honors him. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the most pious people around. And there's Jesus saying to them, you need to be more righteous than they are. You need to just imagine the most godly person that you know, right? Matt Brandner, right? Just imagine that. And you go, you have to be more than that. 
the best example, the best teacher, the best professor, the best pastor, whatever it might be, the one who you just go, if I could be half of what that man or half of what that woman is, I, I would be happy. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds even that, you'll never enter in. Well, I have no shot. But I love what Jesus is doing here because he's doing two things. Think about what he's doing for the listeners and think about what's happening to the scribes and the Pharisees. In one sentence, he challenges both his listeners with a standard they could never exceed, and he has addressed the religious leadership by saying what you're doing is not significant enough. So the listeners, the disciples there go, okay, here's me, here's a scribe Pharisee, ain't no way I'm going to do that. And then the scribe and Pharisee's like, you're dang right, you're not going to be able to do that, I can do that. But Jesus has said to them the same thing. You got to be better than what you're doing. All your training, all your study, all your writing, all your blogs, all your books, all your quotes, all your Facebook posts about Bible verses, all of those things that you're able to do, you have to do more than that. More? Well, what do we do? What do we do with that? Because you can feel hopeless. You can feel dread. You go, I, even me, a pastor, a professional Christian, right? My adult life has only been supported by the work of other Christians who are faithfully living out, you know, real jobs, right? Like, that's how I live. And I hear this, and with the wrong heart, I can go, I just can't do it. I can't, I can't. I can't do it. I mean, we're memorizing two verses a week, and I'm 15 weeks behind. And I got to keep up with people who, can, who have this book of Psalms memorized. They're reading a chapter a day, five days a week, and I can't, I can't keep up with that. I'm, I'm, it started in 2019, and I'm still down. I can't do that. All the sin I've sinned this week and all the ways that I've felt this week and all the ways that I've failed and all the frustrations that I've had and all the poor communication with my spouse and the way that I messed up at work and my kids don't even like me right now, all of that. <clears throat> and I have to somehow be more. I can't be more. I can't do more. I can't try harder. And it feels hopeless. But I want you to think for a second about there's the sermon, but then there's all that Jesus, from that point on, will do. Jesus hasn't completed the work of death, burial, resurrection. Though he knows that's where he's headed, that is not what he is in that moment doing. And with death, burial, resurrection, through faith in Jesus and the Spirit given to us, His righteousness becomes our own. But I do want to give just a few things to consider here at the end. And the first is this, that we do, as 
people who seek to honor God to give attention to what God has said, to listen to what God has said. Read the scriptures. Speak about them with others. Join us. It's October. You can join us for the last three months of reading together. That's fine. But the written word that we read points to the bigger heart of God for how we understand Jesus and how he wants us to relate to his people, his world. And you'll find very quickly that you will not ascend even those with the Spirit seem to still be unable to ascend to this level of right living, even though we have right standing. We still can't do it. So we need to see the bigger heart for God and see how beautiful God is, how great Jesus is, because he did it. And this is cool. This is the the positional offer that is for all of us. Because God's standard doesn't change. Perfect. That's how he's going to end chapter 5. You must be perfect. God's standard doesn't change. But there's an offer that is given in Jesus. That everything Jesus did, Every way he fulfilled, everything that he did, 100% obedience. And let us not forget that Jesus still has a body. And that Jesus still is that fulfillment for us. It's not as if he was like, oh, I'm so glad I got that out of the way. Now we can move it aside. No, God is still speaking and still using these words. And so I want to say this, both by way of reminder or by way of exhortation, to let Jesus' fulfillment be yours. Because this is the offer that he gives to everyone. You can't do it. You won't do it. But through faith in Jesus the Son, his obedience is 100% applied to us. One hundred percent. That the Father would look on us and see the obedience of His Son, and then that would be what is needed. To enter into the kingdom of heaven. So you'll find this tension throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Because right standing is the only way that you can even get to right living. (laughs) And so as we get into these passages, you're going to find yourself convicted probably by your sin. Grateful for the fact that the Father sees Jesus' work in you. But also desiring to better reflect your Savior because of it. And I I want it in that order. Right? I, I want the order of... Wow, that's impossible. I need something to receive from God what is there, the offer of righteousness. 
and from that position go, God, empower me, embolden me to live this out because I have your spirit in me. That flow we will see. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.21, great verse on exchange. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? That's after death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Which then helps to give some color to Jesus' statement of, unless your righteousness exceeds. Well, the righteousness of God is exceeding, isn't it? I don't need the righteousness of a scribe or a Pharisee if I can get the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is what is there for us in Jesus. That's how it happens. And then through the righteousness of God, we live freely and fully and joyfully for him. Only one person has fulfilled the law. Jesus. Only one person has done what is expected. Only one person has given attention to the word of his father, the command of his father, and done it. Only one, our Savior. Through Jesus, we get a new way to relate to God. We don't become exhausted with commandments we can't keep, but we instead get his spirit, which marks us as his and empowers us to live a life that is devoted to him. God is always speaking, but are we listening? I encourage you every day, every moment, to listen to the word of God.